Hello, everyone. It is Monday, April 20th at 3.53 in the afternoon. I forgot to record my message on Thursday. And so I am going to record it here now with you. So I'm just going to imagine that I am in a room with all of you who are listening in the room. And when in reality I'm in a room all by myself, talking out loud to myself, hope nobody walks by and thinks I'm uh, losing it. But needless to say, I'm just going to preach my message to you and hope that it blesses you. Because I know that uh, working through it and writing it was something I needed to hear in this time of my life. And so I want to start with a guy by the name of Ignatius of Loyola, St. Ignatius of Loyola. He was a priest in the early 1500s, a Spanish priest. And he was kind of known for encouraging his students or his people to use their imagination when reading Scripture, especially in, in the stories of Jesus and the Gospels. And he would encourage you to kind of put yourself in the scene, to, to imagine that you were either in the crowd when Jesus was preaching or that you were in a disciple one of the disciples, like in the boat in the middle of the storm, or you were the crippled person that he healed, or that you were a Pharisee um, uh, when, he's, when he's saying things like your sins are forgiven, or, or whatever, just to kind of ex- like imagine you're him, imagine you're her, imagine you're in the scene. H- how would you see it differently? How would you think about it? What would you feel? What would you smell? What would you see? So I've been encouraged lately to do this um, in this, this, I guess, devotional plan that I'm working through. It's different stories of Jesus, and, and I'm asked to kind of put myself in the scene. And uh, let, let me be honest, it was, it's been difficult at first to kind of do this. I'm not used to reading Scripture this way. I don't recommend it as a way of interpreting the Bible, but it certainly has helped me have some things come to life in the text. And... Um, in fact, there's a series out called, there's this TV show series I recommend called The Chosen. It's a TV series based on the life of Christ. This guy's trying to put uh, the life of Jesus into a TV series and have multiple seasons and, and multiple episodes and to really kind of do the life of Christ justice by walking through and giving giving you a fuller picture of maybe what would have happened. And in the first three or four, the first season's out, The Chosen, you can go, you can watch them on YouTube. But the first, I don't know, four episodes or so, really before it gets into even Jesus doing much, is just kind of laying the groundwork and foundation for characters like Mary Magdalene, which we don't know very much about, um, and, and Matthew the tax collector, and uh, Nicodemus the Pharisee. And, and so you, you get to kind of understand what it would have been like for these characters to be who they were before Christ, and then to, ex- and to watch them experience an encounter with Christ, and it, man, I have so appreciated the perspective of this show. It's brought some these some of these scenes to to life for me in a lot of ways. Fred Craddock, in a sermon, he's an old preacher. Um, I think he might be passed, but Fred Craddock, in a sermon he he wrote called or he gave called "When the Roll Is Called Down Here." It's on Romans 16, which is the chapter that I'm going to be in today. 
uh, Romans 16, the first 16 verses. And he preached this sermon when the role is called in here. And, and his goal was to, to help you kind of experience these names. There's like 27 names given that Paul mentions and also a couple family members that he refers to. And, it's, and, he, and, he's, and he preaches this message to kind of help you see these are real people, by the way. These are just a list of names that you just read past and, and get over and try to, try to pronounce. No, these are real people with real pasts and gifts and quirks along with real struggles and needs. So, for example, there's like eight to ten women mentioned in this list. And the reason we don't know if it's exactly eight or ten is because some of the names, we don't know if it's a guy or a girl, a male or a female. Um, but some of the women that are mentioned in this have a promise, prominent position in the church, potentially three that Paul mentions. And so... Which, which is fascinating because if you know much about first century culture, being a woman in the first century is way different than it is today. There were restrictions and demands and limitations culturally and socially. Um, they are sometimes viewed as prop property. And so Phoebe, as this first woman mentioned, she's breaking all kinds of cultural norms and, and maybe being wealthy and getting to travel as she did. Um, Prisca is mentioned in this text, first, first, well, in Romans 16. By the way, I filmed a, about a 15-minute video on explaining verse by verse through uh, Romans 16. We posted it on Facebook and all over. You can check that out if you want to know. But I talk more in detail about, about just walking through the verses. But Pris, Prisca, who's also Priscilla, is mentioned ahead of her husband, and is always referred to together by Paul. What would, have, what would a married couple doing ministry together have been like back then? Was, was Aquila threatened by Priscilla's prominence? What about Rufus's mother? She's, she's recognized by Paul. He doesn't name her, but he calls her a mother to him. Refers to her as being a mother to him. Now, we, I talked a little bit about Rufus's backstory his potential backstory in my video, but what would it have taken for Rufus's mom to become like a mother to Paul? Did she make sure he ate his vegetables? Did she make sure he packed extra underwear? Um, did, did she lecture him about starting riots? Did she worry about him like a mother? Did she nurture him when he was scared or anxious? Did she make him his favorite dessert? What about Epinatus, Paul's first convert in Asia? As he traveled on his missionary journeys, think about Paul right before, like he's, this is when he's sent out to Asia. Okay, he's been preaching the gospel in Israel and he's sent out to Asia and he starts preaching and, and right before Epinatus comes forward, no one accepts, no one's accepting this message. You wonder, is Paul questioning his calling? Is he wondering if he got it wrong, if he should be doing this? And then Epinetus steps forward, and I can imagine him stepping forward and go, yes, I believe, I, I accept this gospel. And then going, okay, now what? <laughs> uh, get baptized. Okay, now what? Uh, ooh, I don't know. You're the first one, you know? Now, I know we like to picture Paul as having... Um, never having doubts and always knowing exactly what to say and to do because, you know, he's, he's Paul. But he was human too. 
Now, I, I don't pretend to know exactly how Paul was feeling in that. I'm just, I'm trying to put myself in the story. I'm trying to picture myself as Epinetus, and who knows? He was a real person. Paul knew him and loved him. Um, it reminds me of I'm, one of the first times that I remember sharing the gospel with someone and they accepted it right there on the spot. It was it was phenomenal. I had shared the gospel many times before and it was always kind of like a, uh, I think they got it. I mean, they kind of agreed, but they, they didn't really say that it was new to them or that they were crossing a line and giving their life. I mean, it, it was just kind of hard to figure out and sometimes they would just want to think about it and sometimes they're like, oh yeah, I believe that since I was a child. I was born in the church, you know, so like, uh, okay. And I remember this kid, Brandon Gallagher, he was 19 years old. He and I had met a few times. I took him on driving lessons. He, he didn't have his license, license yet at 19. In California, that's actually not very uncommon um, to wait till you're 18, 19, 20 to get a license. But so we we drive, we had a little bit of a relationship, and I remember sitting down at a coffee bean in, in Simi Valley, California, and sharing the gospel gospel with him on a napkin and writing it out, Romans 6.23, writing it out, all this stuff. And I get done, he's like, yeah, I want that. I believe. I'm like, oh, oh, okay. Um, well, do you want to get baptized? Yes. Oh, okay. And I remember driving home going, God, I can't believe I w- walked into that meeting just kind of assuming nothing would happen. And he was all in. It was awesome. I was like, thank-. I was like God, that worked. <laughs> it was, thank you for letting me be a part of that. Now, Again, we could go on and on with each of these characters in these stories, but I, I just think it's helpful whenever we read a list of names in the Bible. These aren't just names that we read over and try to pronounce because they're weird names, but they're real people. And Paul loved them. And, and, and we get to see Paul's love for the people. Like I mentioned in the video, a group of people to a church he'd never even visited. And he knew several people, and he had strong connections with, with a lot of them. Now, we know a lot more about Paul than we do about them. But, because of Paul, we know a lot about them. We know, we know what it would have been for them to accept Christ. We know what would have come with that. Specifically, even because of Romans. So, let me just walk through a few of these. We know that some of them were Gentile and some were Jewish, but all had sinned and fallen short of, of the glory of God, and therefore were by nature objects of God's wrath, and yet experienced incredible grace because of Jesus, and were declared righteous by faith in Him. And even though they were once enemies, now they have peace and have been reconciled with God through Jesus, they have a new life in Christ. They were slaves to sin before, but now they're slaves to God in righteousness. We know that no matter their past, no matter what had gone on before Christ, that they are no longer condemned, that they have been set free from sin and death. We know that no matter what happens to them, that they're more than conquerors and that nothing can separate them from the love of Christ. That we know. And we know that when what happens when those truths about the gospel take root in someone's life, it changes everything. Now, 
This text in Romans 16, these people that we know little about, it doesn't really teach us anything. Paul isn't actually trying to teach anything in this text. He's just, he's just expressing his love and his excitement for and his preparation for meeting with these people. But I, this, this line in this commentary, a guy by the name of Douglas Moo said this uh, specifically about Romans 16. He said, a text is often as interesting for what it assumes as for what it explicitly teaches. And so there are two assumptions in this text that I want to highlight, that I think Paul exemplifies, and that I think this Paul expressing his love for these people um, gives, us, uh, gives us an example of. The first is this, to look to Jesus as you love his church wherever you are. Look to Jesus as you love his church wherever you are. This is something that we encourage our students, especially those who have graduated and who, moving, who are moving on. If you're listening to this and you're an alumni, hopefully you've heard us talk about maybe at the grad lunch or something to plug into a church, to love the church. And that's something we are convicted of more and more and more. Don't just fall in love with Sunnybrook and then leave here and go, oh, I can't find a church like Sunnybrook. Okay, maybe it's not Sunnybrook. Maybe it's your home church that you love so much and you come here and you're like, yeah, I can't find a church like the other church, so I'm just going to hop around. Or you, you go in to uh, move to a new city and, and you can't find, you know, preaching like, I don't know, like Matt Chandler or worship like whatever. Or you, you have these expectations and listen, we want you to love the body of Christ wherever you go. And when you look to Jesus, I believe he'll lead you to love his church, his family. The Bible calls the church the family of God the bride of Christ, the body of Christ. And I want you to love his church. And I have loved um, his church, and that has brought great joy to me. And so I'm going to list three people who are in the church, um, three people who don't really know, actually kind of two of them kind of know each other. Um, But I want to... I want to talk about these three people and how they've had an impact on my life and my relationship with God. And, and while I'm doing that, I want you to be thinking of, or maybe even write down, unless you're driving, write down a couple names of some people who have been a blessing to you and have been significant influence in your relationship with Christ. The first one, her name is Patricia. Patricia was born in 1926 in Union Star, Missouri. Most of you have no idea where that is. It is a small town outside of St. Joe, Missouri, which is a bigger town north of Kansas City, Missouri. She lived her whole life in this little bitty town of about 450 people, maybe maybe six, seven hundred at its heyday. Lived her whole life there until she died in 2015. She married a man named William right after he returned home from World War II. Um, But I call him Grandpa Bill. Um, She, my grandma, was a piano teacher and a grocery store clerk. And at one time, maybe an elementary teacher when she wasn't raising her three boys. In 1995... 
my grandma lost her husband. My grandpa passed away, and she spent the last 20 years of her life as a widow. And she did things like go to church and read her Bible and read lots of books. She was a reader. She played with her grandkids. She loved her grandkids. Actually, by then, it would be great-grandkids she played with. She loved us well. She, she taught us songs, and she played games with us. She played cards, games, anything we would play. And, and my grandma went through a lot in her life, um, most of which she never complained about, some of which she never even told anyone. We found out some things after she had passed, that some difficult things that she had been through. Um, the, I found out the week she was dying that she had had leukemia for the last 10 years of her life, but she didn't want us to know. She was a, an incredible woman, a tough woman, and she loved the Lord. At her funeral, I got to read from her Bible, and it was such a, such a blessing to me to open up her Bible and to see her, just evidence of her being in it, underlining and taking notes and all the different bulletins that she had had saved in there. And she raised her family in the church. She was a spiritual rock. I'm convinced that if it wasn't for her, my, my dad and his two brothers wouldn't have grown up in church. Um, I'm convinced that, that her relationship with the Lord is, is what caused my dad, when he was in his late 20s, early 30s, to go back to church and to raise his family to know the Lord too. I am eternally grateful for my grandma, Patricia, and her relationship with the Lord because of its influence on my life. Kent is another person. Kent was born in 1967 in Lawton, Oklahoma. I just found this out in between Thursday and now. He was, But he was raised all over, moved around a lot growing up. He went to college in Nebraska at Nebraska Christian College and uh, went into to be a youth minister. Uh, during the summer of my eighth grade year, Kent and his, and his wife Anna moved to our city for the summer to be our summer youth minister and eventually later moved into our house when he graduated. Uh, he and his wife lived their first year in our basement and um, he, we became friends. He played basketball. I played basketball. Um, he was the guy several years later when I walked away from the Lord. He called me back. He invited me back uh, on a retreat that changed my life. Um, later, when I was dating a girl who wasn't a Christian, he con confronted me about it, and it led to me ending that relationship, which I'm um, thankful for. Um, he's also the one that married my wife and I later on in college when I met Ryan. So he has had a profound influence on my life. Um, and then the last one is Frank. Um, Frank was born in 1932 in Montreal, Quebec. He grew up in a religious, a culturally religious home, but came to Christ after he was married at the age of 28. He was in the Canadian Air Force for his whole career. He and his wife, Betty, were the only ones on either side of their families who were followers of Jesus. And they raised six kids, four girls and two boys, and, and spent most of their time raising their kids in um, small Church of Christs all over Canada as they moved around. I've only been around Frank maybe, I don't know, half a dozen times in my life. I don't know him, know him super well. Uh, I, I would get to meet him and visit with him whenever he would come visit his second youngest son, James. 
better known around here as Jim. But next to my dad, Frank Johnson's son, Jim, has had the greatest impact on my love for God and his church. So I am incredibly indebted to Frank for raising his family to know and love the Lord. Now, I picked these three names because they're somewhat random. They're somewhat unrelated to each other. I, I could have put a handful of names from my time in California that impacted me. I could have put a bunch of names from my time here in Oklahoma that has impacted me. The point is that as I have loved the church, I have experienced God's love to me through his church. So hopefully by now you have a couple names. Like Paul, who pointed out some names, I'd, I'd like for you to point out some names of some people who've had a significant influence in your life and a couple things about them. One is to reach out to them at some point. Just, just let them know what they mean to you. Second is that this list will grow as you love the church. I'm convinced, especially if you're a student watching this or if your alumni recently moved away from college, that there are people in churches that you don't even know exist that will be on that list. And all you have to do is love the church that Jesus loves wherever you are. Look to him. Look to him and he will guide you to love her. He will help you. He will give you a love for their church. I know it's hard to connect to a church and to have expectations and to look around and not find what you want and to walk into a church full of strangers and to feel weird. I understand that. But they're not, yes, you've never met them before, but they're not strangers. They're family. They're, they're the family of God. And so I encourage you to love the church well. Let me read 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 and 10. He says, about brotherly love, you don't need me to write you because you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. In fact, you are doing this toward all the brothers and sisters in the entire region of Macedonia. But we encourage you, brothers and sisters, to do this even more. He says, love each other. It's a big deal to Paul. And you see it modeled in the way he loves the people in Romans 16. Here's the second assumption that I want you to take away from this, is to look to Jesus and love the life that God gives you. Now, I'm going to say this, and then I'm going to tell you why I hate what I just said. Not all of us can be Paul. Think about the list of people in, this, in Romans 16, a bunch of people we've never heard of, a bunch of people we never hear of again. And then, not all of us can be Paul so notice I'm saying it sarcastically because I want you to hear my sarcasm in that statement. There's something in our culture that tells us that we should all want to be the most important, the hero, the most successful. As if somehow Paul is the one who's the most important, the most successful, and the hero here. And if we don't have these massive aspirations... That something is wrong with us. And, and if you are a student, especially if you're listening, or even if you're whatever, alumni, whatever, you remember in high school the tension that you had. When people would ask you what you're graduating from high school, what you're going to do, where you're going to go, and you had to give them this elaborate plan, this incredible, like, so, like oh, I've got my next eight years planned out. Oh. Um, 
half of us are going, oh, wow, that's great. The other half of us that actually have a clue about how this really works go, sure you do. Sure you are. It's, listen, it's okay. We've all been there. But it's, there's something in our culture that says you have to have big plans. You have to like want to change the world. And if you don't, then what's wrong with you? And so my, I have an 18-year-old daughter who's graduating high school. This, she's a senior this year, 2020. And wow, what a, what a year for her to be a senior. Um, but she has felt that tension for the last year and a half. To have to have some elaborate plan, to have to have some well thought out, to know exactly what she's going to do with her life plan, and, to, and for it to be big and important. Our culture defines success and failure different than Jesus does, by the way. It shouts at us to look a certain way, to have certain things, and ultimately it calls us to look around to, to the world, to everything under the sun, to look around and, and, and to find our meaning and our purpose in this life. I want to read an interesting line. It actually comes in the very next verse from what I just read a little bit ago. 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 and 12 says this, Seek to live a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands as we commanded you so that you may behave properly in the presence of outsiders and not be dependent on anyone. I want to talk about these two phrases, okay? I don't want the rest we can get into later. The two phrases I want to talk about I think are helpful for us right now. Live, or sorry, lead a quiet life and mind your own business. What, do, what does Paul mean by that? I think it's an, in, those are a couple interesting phrases that, that deal specifically with some unique things in Thessalonica, but also some universal things for all of us. So for our purposes, I believe, um, what he's saying, what he's saying when he says lead a quiet life, what he means is he says he's suggesting to withdraw from the noise and antagonism by favoring a more quiet and contemplative setting, opting for a virtuous and peaceful place to live. But the second phrase Mind your own business. He's not saying keep your nose out of everybody's business. What he means is he's suggesting, based on the language and what's being used and all this, he's suggesting to withdraw from public matters and to devote to one's own private interests, to, to give attention to that which one is called to or suited for. So, to summarize these two phrases, here's what I think Paul's saying. Paul's encouraging them to not seek fame in their city, to seek a peaceful and virtuous life by giving your attention to what God has asked you to do or, or gifted you for. So when we believe that we're supposed to, like our culture or, or our world tells us, when we believe that we're supposed to find our meaning and purpose in this world, in a certain kind of life, that we're opening ourselves up to experience what Jay Springer calls hijacked futility. If you're taking notes, which I don't know why you would, <laughs> write down hijacked futility because I think it's a phenomenal idea. It's a profound idea. It's one that I've been wrestling with lately. So to, to explain futility, 
and what the Bible says about it, the best place to look would be Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is an incredible book. It, it's a book full of wisdom, but it's wisdom given in kind of an upside-down way. The old, the, basically what Ecclesiastes is saying is life's meaning and purpose is not found under the sun. That's a phrase that's used quite a bit. It's not found under the sun in things like work or in wealth or in pleasure or even in, in, in seeking wisdom. And when you seek to find it in those things, you'll realize that it's futile. It's, it's the word futile, futile, hebel, is the Hebrew word used that, that in Ecclesiastes, hebel, is a word that literally means vapor. And I think the picture that's, that is being, um, I don't know, the picture that's being used, if you will, the metaphor that's being used is imagine if you had, if vapor was in front of you and you tried to reach out and grab it and make it do something you wanted it to do. You can't do it. It's like trying to grab smoke or vapor. You stick your hand above a, a boiling pot of water and try to capture the vapor. You can't. It slips right through your hand. It's, it's invisible yet visible. So that's the reality that all of us will experience, will experience in this life when we seek to find meaning and purpose in things under the sun. Um, and what, what the, the, the ultimate message of Ecclesiastes is, um, life isn't, the meaning and purpose of life isn't found in those things under the sun. It's ultimately found in who is above the sun in God, who's above the sun. And there's great wisdom when we encounter the futility of this world because it can remind us of who we need to put our hope in. But when you, when you encounter futility and you let it hijack you, like Jay Springer's describing, then you can easily lose hope and resign to just give up. <laughs> because what's the point? So, I don't know if you felt this way, but over the last several weeks as we've been in quarantine, as, as the, the world has basically stopped and it's all kinds of things are happening, and honestly, I think, I think we all can agree the worst is yet to come. Even if they let us back out of our homes, there's going to be things like economies and uh, there's going to be lots of things that come down the pike as a result of this. And so there can be an easy chance, and there has been for me, that it, to think, what's the point? Like, I've done all of this, and now it's just washed away. Like, you know, uh, retirements are down, and the, the number of uh, unemployment is so up. It's the highest it's ever been, I think, since the Great Depression, I think. I, I don't know. Don't quote me on anything. But it's easy to go, what's the point? Here's the thing. If you go, if you go what's the point? Oh, yeah. Forgot God. The point isn't found in these things. It's not found in the, the number of jobs. It's not found in economies as my in my bank account or my retirements. The point isn't found in those things, God. It's found in you. Thank you for reminding me. If you do that, great. That's awesome. But if you're like most of us, including me, if you go, what's the point? And then you start going, yeah, there is no point. It doesn't matter. Nothing I do matters. I don't matter. That's when we experience hijacked futility. And listen to what Jay Springer says about hijacked futility. He says that when futility goes unaddressed, it will eventually taunt us with the message that nothing can be done to change our situation. 
unaddressed resignation, just, so just resigning to do whatever, who cares? Unaddressed resignation will propel us into broken, sinful patterns. And he says, evil is never content with futility in one sphere of life. It wants to invade all of them, particularly the places that hold the greatest potential for beauty. Like sexual brokenness. The, the book that I read this in is, is dealing with sexual brokenness. And specifically that it is, was intended to be a, a thing of beauty in, in one's life. And how the enemy and how this world and how all kinds of things have twisted sexuality into something that is now destroying lives. And that's kind of his point. So, none of us should ever say, my life doesn't matter. My, this is never going to change. I will never be whatever. When it's coming from a place of hijacked futility. Because of what Christ has done, anything can be redeemed. And you and I can live out our purpose in the, pla- in the least of all places by looking to him. Like, like stuck in your, in your house or in your apartment or in your room. And just going, all right, God, this is where you have me. And so I'm going to look to you and do what is next. Because, of, because I have been brought um, from death to life, I don't have to fear failure of re- or, uh, or rejection. Like, there's no job, no role that he's given me that is too big for me. Because of Jesus, there's no job and no role that I have that is too small to glorify him in. Because of Christ's death for me and for you, I know how God defines me and you. He defines us as loved and accepted, redeemed and restored, gifted and set free. So therefore, our life matters. Our circumstances can be redeemed. Our eternity is secured in Jesus. Our impact is up to Him. Our success in life is defined by faithfulness to Him. Listen, you and I can do all we want with our money, with our time, with our resources, with our energy to create a legacy that will outlive us. That's a big thing, especially when you get old like me and you and you start really dealing with the fact that you could die and and. And you start thinking about, well, what's been the point? Well, maybe if I just leave this legacy, I'll be remembered. And and what I do will really matter. Listen, all the impact, all the things that we do, none of it is determined by us. And what kind of eternal fruit it has is only determined by God. God determines the the, the right kind of impact that you and I have. So, so therefore, he determines what success in life is. He's the one that says, well done, good and faithful servant. Or, he says, you, I never knew you. It's him. That's why we got to look to him. And as we look to him, I think, not only will, we, will he help us love his church, I think he'll help us love our life. And he'll help us love the things that he's called us to. 
It'll help us love doing what he has for us to do. And I believe he'll help us trust him with everything else, including our impact or our future or whatever it is that you worry about. That's why Jesus said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these other things, okay, all these other things, which he's talking, in context, he's talking about food and um, shelter, I think. He's just basically saying, like, oh, no, no, food and clothes. That's what it is. Food and clothes are in Matthew 6. That's the context. All these other things. Seek first, and, like, you'll get to eat, and you'll have some clothes to wear. Seek first his kingdom. And all these other things that don't matter, like food and clothing, you'll have them. Yeah, we don't, you and I don't. If you're listening to this, if you're listening to a podcast, you're not worried about food and clothing. So, that's a big deal. Man, I need to hear this. I need to hear that um, I need to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. I, I need to learn to be content with where I am as I passionately pursue him and what he has for me. To be content and passionate at the same time. That's a challenge. That's a challenge for me. I can very easily fall into um, resignation and hijacked futility. But I hope that you, like me, um, hope you need to hear this idea that we need to look to Jesus. And as we look to him, he'll help us love his church and he'll help us love the life that he has for us. Thanks for listening. And I hope this blesses your day. Let me pray. And then... uh, I will hit stop, and you will go on with your life. Let me pray. God, thank you for um, this message. I definitely needed to hear it. I definitely needed it, and I'm thankful for putting it um, in my path and putting it as something that I need to do. God, I pray that you would help us to have your perspective on our life, and the community that we live and and involve ourselves in. And God, I pray that if anyone is listening to this, Lord, and if they don't know you, that they would look to you first to find salvation, to find grace and forgiveness, to surrender their life to you. And and God, for, for everyone else, I pray that they would look to you and love the church that you you gave to them and love the life that you gave to them. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys.